Section 8 of The Golden Bough, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12, The Sacred Marriage, Part 3, Sacrifices to Water Spirits. Stories of the Perseus and Andromeda type. Ibn Battuta's narrative of the demon lover and his mortal brides closely resembles a well-known type of folk tale, of which versions have been found from Japan to Anam in the east to Senegambia, Scandinavia, and Scotland in the west. The story varies in details from people to people, but as commonly told, it runs thus. Have certain countries infested by a many-headed serpent, dragon, or other monster, which would destroy the whole people, if a human victim, generally a virgin, were not delivered up to him periodically. Many victims had perished, and at last it has fallen to the lot of the king's own daughter to be sacrificed. She is exposed to the monster, but the hero of the tale, generally a young man of humble birth, interposes in her behalf, slays the monster, and receives the hand of the princess as his reward. In many of the tales, the monster, who is sometimes described as a serpent, inhabits the water of the sea, a lake, or a fountain. In other versions, he is a serpent or dragon who takes possession of the springs of water and only allows the water to flow or the people to make use of it on condition of receiving a human victim. Water spirits conceived as serpents or dragons. It would probably be a mistake to dismiss all these tales as pure inventions of the storyteller. Rather, we may suppose that they reflect a real custom of sacrificing girls or women to be the wives of water spirits who are very often conceived as great serpents or dragons. Elsewhere I have cited many instances of this belief in serpent-shaped spirits of water. Here it may be worth while to add a few more. Thus, the watermonger of Central Australia perform elaborate ceremonies to appease or curse a gigantic but purely mythical water snake who is said to have destroyed a number of people. Some of the natives of Western Australia fear to approach large pools, supposing them to be inhabited by a great serpent who would kill them if they dared to drink or draw water there by night. The Indians in New Granada believed that when the mother of all mankind, named Bachu, was grown old, she and her husband plunged into the lake of Iguagu, where they were changed into two enormous serpents, which still live in the lake and sometimes show themselves. The Oyampi Indians of French Guiana imagined that each waterfall has a guardian in the shape of a monstrous snake, who lies hidden under the eddy of the cascade, but has sometimes been seen to lift up its huge head. To see it as fatal, canoe and Indians are then dragged down to the bottom, where the monster swallows all the men, and sometimes the canoe also. Hence the Olympians never name the waterfall till they have passed it, for fear that the snake at the bottom of the water might hear its name and attack the rash intruders. The Huicol Indians in Mexico adore water. Springs are sacred and the gods in them are mothers or serpents, that rise with the clouds and descend as fructifying rain. The Tarahumars, another Indian tribe of Mexico, think that every river, pool, and spirit has its servant, who causes the war to come up out of the earth. All these water serpents are easily offended, hence the Tarahumars place their houses some little way from the water and will not sleep near it when they are on a journey. Whenever they construct weirs to catch fish, they take care to offer fish to the water serpent of the river, and when they are away from home and are making pinol, 
that is, toasted maize meal, they drop the first of the pinole into the water as an offering to the serpents, who would otherwise try to seize them and chase them back to their own land. In Basutherland, Livers Katane and Malatsiain tumble, with a roar of waters and a cloud of iridescent spray into vast chasms hundreds of feet deep. The Basutos fear to approach the foot of these huge falls, for they think that a spirit in the shape of a gigantic snake haunts the seething cauldron which receives the falling waters. Sacrifices of Human Beings to Water Spirits The perils of the sea, of floods, of rapid rivers, of deep pools and lakes, naturally account for the belief that water spirits are fickle and dangerous beings, who need to be appeased by sacrifices. Sometimes these sacrifices consist of animals, such as horses and bulls, but often the victims are human beings. Thus at the mouth of the Bonnie River, there is a dangerous bar in which vessels trading to the river have been lost. This is bad for business, and accordingly the Negroes used to sacrifice a young man annually to the spirit of the bar. The handsman's youth was chosen for the purpose, and for many months before the ceremony he lodged with the king. The people regarded him as sacred, or juju, and whatever he touched, even when he passed casually through the streets, shared his sanctity, and belonged to him. Hence, whenever he appeared in public, the inhabitants fled before him, lest he should touch their garments or anything they might be carrying. He was kept in ignorance of the fate in store for him, and no one might inform him of it under pain of death. On an appointed day, he was taken out to the bar in a canoe and induced to jump into the water. Then the rowers plied their paddles and left him to drown. A similar ceremony used to be performed at the New Calabar River, but the victim was a culprit. He was thrown into the water to be devoured by the sharks, which are there the principal fetish, or juju. The chiefs of Duke Town, on the same coast of Guinea, were wont to make an annual offering to the river. A young woman of a light colour, or an albino, was chosen as the victim. On a set day they decked her with finery, took her down to Parrot Island, and, with much ceremony, plunged her in the stream. The fishermen Urfiat, at the mouth of the river, are still said to observe the right in order to ensure a good catch of fish. The king of Dahomey is to send, from time to time a man, dressed out with the insignia of others, to Wada, to be drowned at the mouth of the river. The intention of the sacrifice was to attract merchant ships. When a fisherman is being carried off by a crocodile, some of the natives on the banks of Lake Tanganyaka take this for a sign that the spirit deems himself slighted since he is obliged to come and find victims for himself instead of having them presented to him. Hence the sorcerers generally decide that a second victim is wanted. So having chosen one, they bind him hand and foot and fling him into the lake to feed the crocodiles. The crater of the volcano, Tolucan, New Mexico, encloses two lakes of clear cold water, surrounded by gloomy forests of pine. Here, in the eighteenth months of the Toltec year, answering to February, Children beautifully dressed and decked with flowers and gay feathers used to be drowned as an offering to Tlaloc, the god of the waters, and had a fine temple on the spot. The chams of Anam had traditions of a time when living men were thrown into the sea every year in order to propitiate the deities who looked after the fishing, and when children of good family were drowned in the water channels in order that the rice fields might be duly irrigated. Water spirits considered as beneficent beings who dispense fertility. This last instance brings out a more kindly aspect of the water spirits. If these beings are dreaded by the fisherman and the mariner who tempt the angry sea, and by the huntsman who has to swim or ford the rushing rivers, 
they are viewed in a different light by the shepherd and the husbandman in hot and arid lands where the pasture for the cattle and the produce of the fields alike depend on the supply of water where prolonged drought means starvation and death for man and beast to men in such circumstances the spirits of the waters are beneficent beings the dispensers of life and fertility wherever their blessings descend as rain from heaven a well up as springs of bubbling water in the parched desert in the semitic east for example where the rain falls precarious or confined to certain seasons the face of the earth is bare and withered for most of the year except where it is kept fresh by irrigation or by the percolation of underground water here accordingly the local gods or balaam had their seats originally in spots of natural fertility by fountains in the banks of rivers in groves and tangled thickets and green glades of mountain hollows and deep watercourses as laws of the springs and subterranean waters they were supposed to be the sources of all the gifts of the land the corn the wine and the oil the wood and the flax the vines and the fig trees water spirits conceived as bestowing offspring on women where water spirits are thus conceived as the authors of fertility in general it is natural that they should be held to extend the sphere of their operations to men and animals in other words that the power of bestowing offspring on barren women and cattle should be ascribed to them this description comes out clearly in a custom served by syrian women at the present day some of the channels of the orontes are used for irrigation but at a certain season of the year the streams are turned off and the dry bed of the channels is cleared of mud and any other matter that might clog the flow of the water the first night that the water is turned on again it is said to the power of procreation accordingly barren women take their places in the channel waiting for the embrace of the water spirit in the rush of the stream again a pool of water in a cave at juna enjoys the same reputation the people think a childless couple who bathe in the water will have offspring in india many wells are supposed to cure sterility which is universally attributed to the agency of evil spirits the water of seven wells is collected on the night of the diwali or feast of lamps and barren women bathe in it in order to remove their reproach there is a well in orissa where the priests throw betel nuts into the mud childless women scramble for the nuts and she who finds them will be a happy mother before long for the same reason after childbirth an indian mother is taken to worship the village well she walks round it in the course of the sun and smears the platform with red lead which may be substituted for blood a kanda priest will take a childless woman for the mating of two streams where he makes an offering to the god of births and sprinkles the woman with water in order to rid her of the influence of the spirit who hinders conception in the Punjab, a barren woman who desires to become a mother will sometimes be let down into a well on a sunday or tuesday night during the diwali festival after stripping herself of her clothes and bathing in the water she is drawn up again and performs the chakpurna ceremony with incantations taught by a wizard when the ceremony has been performed the well is supposed to run dry its quickening and fertilizing virtue has been abstracted by the woman the indian sect of the Vallabhacharyas or maharajas believe that bathing in a sacred well is a remedy for barrenness in women in antiquity the waters asinusa in campania were thought to bless charter's wives with offspring to this day syrian women resort to hot springs in order to obtain children from the saint or genie of the waters in scotland the same fertilizing virtue used to be and probably still is ascribed to certain springs wives who wished to become mothers formerly resorted to the well of st philan at comrie and to the well of st mary at whitekirk and in the isle of may 
in the Iran islands off the coast of Galway, women desirous of children pray at St. Ine's well by the angel's walk, and the men pray at the rag well by the church the four comely ones at Ornott. Charles Will in Oxford was supposed to have the virtue of making barren women to bring forth. Near Bringfield in Northumberland, there is a copious sulphur spring known as the Borwell. On the Sunday following the fourth day of July, that is about Midsummer's Day, according to the old style, great crowds of people used to assemble at the well from all the surrounding hamlets and villages. The scene was like a fair, stalls for the sale of refreshments being brought and set up for the occasion. The neighbouring slopes were terraced, and seats formed for the convenience of pilgrims and visitors. Barren women prayed at the well that they might become mothers. If their faith was strong enough, their prayers were heard within the year. Love of River Spirits for Women in Greek Mythology In Greek mythology, similar ideas of the procreative power of water made us in stories of the loves of rivers for women in the legends, which trace the descent of heroes and heroines from river gods. In Sophocles' play of the Trachinian women, Degenera tells how she was wooed by the river Achelos, who came to her father and claimed her hand, appearing in the likeness now of a bull, now of a serpent, now of being with the body of a man and the front of an ox, while streams of water flowed from his shaggy beard. She relates, too, how glad she was how Hercules presented himself and vanquished the river god in single combat and took her to wife. The legend, perhaps, preserves a reminiscence of that custom of providing a water god with a human wife, which has been practised elsewhere. The motive of such a custom may have varied with the particular conception which happened to prevail of the character of the water gods, where he was supposed to be a cruel and destructive being who drowned men and laid waste the country. A wife would be offered simply to keep him in good humour, and so prevent him from doing mischief. But where he was viewed as a procreative power on whom the fertility of earth and the fecundity of men and animals depended, his marriage would be deemed necessary for the purpose of enabling him to discharge his beneficial functions. This belief in the amorous character of rivers comes out plainly in a custom which was observed at Troy down to classical times. Maidens about to marry were wont to bathe in the Scamander, saying as they did so, Scamander, take my virginity. A similar custom appears to have been observed at the river Meander, and perhaps in other parts of the Greek world. Occasionally it would seem young men took advantage of the practice to ravage the girls, and the offerings of such a union was fathered on the river god. The bath which a Greek bride and bridegroom regularly took before marriage appears to have been intense to bless their union with offspring through the fertilizing influence of the water nymphs. In Europe, the custom of marrying a woman to a water spirit survives only in tales and pageants. Thus it would appear that in many parts of the world, a custom has prevailed of sacrificing human beings to water spirits, and that, in not a few cases, the ceremony has taken the form of making over a woman to the spirit to be his wife, in order either to pacify his fury or to give play to his generative powers. Where the water spirit was regarded as female, young men might be presented to her for a similar purpose, and this may be the reason why the victims sacrificed to water spirits are sometimes males. Among civilized peoples, these customs survive, for the most part, only in popular tales, of which the legend of Perseus and Andromeda, with its medieval counterpart of St. George and the Dragon, is the most familiar example. But occasionally they appear to have left traces of themselves in ceremonies and pageants. Midsummer Custom of Slaying the Dragon at the Firth in Bavaria Thus, at Firth in Bavaria, 
a drama called the slaying of the dragon used to be acted every year about midsummer on the sunday after corpus christi day crowds of spectators flocked from the neighbourhood to witness it the scene of the performance was the public square on a platform stood or sat a princess wearing a golden crown on her head and as many silver ornaments on her body as could be borrowed for the purpose she was attended by a maid of honour opposite her was stationed the dragon a dreadful monster of painted canvas stretched a wooden skeleton and moved by two men inside from time to time the creature would rush into gaping jaws from the dense crowd of spectators who retreated hastily tumbling over each other in their anxiety to escape then a knight in armour attended by his men-at-arms rode forth and asked the princess what she did on this hard stone and why she looked so sad she told him that the dragon was coming to eat her up on that the knight bade her be of good cheer and that for his sword he would rid the country of the monster. With that he charged the dragon, thrusting his spear into its maw, and taking care to stab a bladder of bullock's blood which was there concealed. The gush of blood which followed was an indispensable part of the show, and the knight missed his stroke, he was unmercifully jeered and torted by the crowd. Having dispatched the monster with sword and pistol, the knight then hastened to the princess, and told her that he had slain the dragon who had so long oppressed the town. In return, she tied a wreath round his arm, and announced that her noble father and mother would soon come to give them half the kingdom. The men-at-arms then escorted the knight and the princess to the tavern, there to end the day with dance and revelry. Bohemians and Bavarians came from many miles to witness this play of the slaying of the dragon, and when the monster's blood streamed forth, they eagerly mopped it up, along with the blood-soaked earth, in white cloths, which they afterwards laid on the flax fields, in order that flax might thrive and grow tall. For the dragon's blood was thought to be a sure protection against witchcraft. This use of the blood suffices to prove that the slaying of the dragon at Firth was not a mere popular spectacle, but a magical rite designed to fertilise the fields. As such, it probably descended from a very remote antiquity, and may well have been invested with a character of solemnity in order of tragedy long before it degenerated into a farce. St. Romain delivers Runen from a dragon more famous was the dragon from which according to legend st romain delivered ruin and far more impressive was the ceremony with which down to the french revolution the city commemorated its deliverance the stately and beautiful edifices of the middle ages which still adorned ruin form a fitting background for a pageant which carried the mind back to the days when henry the second of england richard Coeur de leon dukes normandy still had their palace in this ancient capital of their ancestral domains legend ran that about the year 520 a.d a forestal marsh in the city was infested by a monstrous beast in the shape of a serpent or dragon which every day brought a great harm to ruin and its neighbourhood devouring man and beast causing boats and mariners on the river seine to perish and inflicting other woes innumerable on the commonwealth and last the archbishop st romain resolved to beard the monster in his den he could get none to accompany him but a prisoner condemned to death for murder on their approach the dragon made as though he would swallow them up but the archbishop relying on the divine help made the sign of the cross and at once the monster became so gentle that he suffered the saint to bind him with his stole and the murderer to lead him like a lamb to the slaughterer thus they went in procession to a public place in rowan where the dragon was burned in the presence of the people and his ashes cast into the river in memory of this deliverance the archbishop and chapter of rowan were annually allowed to pardon a malefactor on ascension day the murderer was pardoned for his services 
and the fame of the deed having gone abroad, St. Romain, or his successor, St. Owen, whose memory is enshrined in a church of dreamlike beauty at ruin, obtained from King Dagobert, in perpetuity, a privilege for the archbishop, dean and canons of the cathedral, to wit, that every year on Ascension Day, the anniversary of the miracle, they should pardon and release from prison a malefactor, whomsoever they choose, and wherever the crime of which he had been guilty. This privilege, unique in France, was claimed by the chapter of the cathedral as early as the beginning of the 13th century, for in 1210, the governor of the castle ruin, having boggled at giving up a prisoner, the chapter appealed to King Philip Augustus, who caused an inquiry to be made into the claim. This inquiry, nine witnesses swore that never in the reigns of Henry II and Richard Cordillon, Duke's Normandy, had there been any difficulty raised on the point in question. Henceforth, the chapter seems to have enjoyed the right without opposition down to 1790, when exercised its privilege of mercy for the last time. Next year, the face of things had changed. There was neither archbishop nor chapter Rowan. A register of the names of the prisoners who were pardoned together with the accounts of their crimes was kept and still exists. Only a few of the names in the 13th century are known, and there are many gaps in the first half of the 14th century, but from that time onward, the register is nearly complete. Most of the crimes appear to have been murder or homicide. Ceremony of the Annual Pardon and Release of a Prisoner in Ruin The proceedings on the Great Day of Pardon varied somewhat in different ages. The following account is based in great part on a description written in the reign of Henry III and published at Rouen in 1587. Fifteen days before Ascension Day, the canons of the cathedral summoned the king's officers to stop all proceedings against criminals detained in prison. Afterwards on the Monday or rogations, two canons examined the prisoners and took their confessions, going from prison to prison till Ascension Day. On that day, about seven o'clock in the morning, all the canons assembled in the chapter house and invoked the grace of the Holy Spirit by the hymn, Veni Creator Spiritus, and other prayers. Also they made oath to reveal none of the depositions of the criminals, but to hold them sacred under the seal of confession. The depositions have been taken, and the commissioners heard. The chapter after due deliberation named him, or her, among the prisoners who was to receive the benefit of the privilege. A card bearing the prisoner's name, and sealed with the seal of the chapter, was then sent to the members of Parliament, who were sitting in full assembly, clad in their red robes, in the great hall of the palace to receive the nomination of the prisoner, and to give it legal effect. The criminal was then released and pardoned. Immediately the minister bells began to ring, the doors of the cathedral were flung open, the organ pealed, hymns were sung, candles lit, and every solemnity observed in token of joy and gladness. Further, in presence of the conclave, all the depositions of the other prisoners were burnt on the altar of the chapter house. Then the archbishop and the whole of the clergy of the cathedral went in procession to the great square known as the Old Tower near the river, carrying the shrines and reliquaries of the minster, and accompanied by the joyous music of hautboys and clarions. Apparently the Old Tower occupies the site of the ancient castle of the Dukes of Normandy, and the custom of going thither in possession came down from a time when the prisoners were detained in the castle dungeons. In the square there stood, and still stands, a platform of stone raised high above the ground and approached by flights of steps. Thither they brought the shrine, Fayette, of St. Romain, and thither too was led to pardon prisoner. He ascended the platform, and after confessing his sins and receiving absolution, he thrice lifted the shrine of St. Romain, where the innumerable multitude assembled in the square cried aloud. Each time the shrine was lifted, Noel, 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 which was understood to mean, God be with us, 
That done, the procession reformed and returned to the cathedral. At the head walked a beadle clad in violet, who bore on a pole the wicker effigy of the winged dragon of Notre Dame, holding a large fish in its mouth. The whispers and cries excited by the appearance of the monster were drowned in the loud fanfares of cornets, clarions, and trumpets. Behind the musicians, who wore the liveries of the master of the Brotherhood Notre Dame with his arms emblazoned on ensign of Taffeta, came the carved silver-gilt shrine of Notre Dame. After following the clergy of the cathedral to the number of two hundred, clad in robes of violet or crimson silk, bearing banners, crosses, and shrines, and chanting the hymn De Resurrection Domini, then came the archbishop, giving his blessings to the great multitude who thronged the streets. The prisoner himself walked behind, bareheaded, crowned with flowers, carrying one end of the litter which supported the shrine of St. Romain, the fetters he had worn hung from the litter, and with him placed, with lighted torches in their hands, the men and women who, for the last seven years, had in like manner received their pardon. Now the beetle, in a violet livery, marched behind bearing aloft on a pole of the wicker effigy of the dragon, Gargoyle, destroyed by St. Romain, in its mouth the dragon sometimes held a live animal, such as a young fox, a rabbit, or a sucking pig, and it was attended by the brotherhood of the gargoyles. The clergy of the thirty-two parishes of Rouen also took part in the procession, which moved from the old tower to the cathedral amid the acclamations of the crowd, while from every church tower in the city the bells rang out a joyous peal, the great Georges d'Ambriose thundering above them all. After mass being performed in the cathedral, the prisoner was taken to the house of the master of the Brotherhood of St. Romain, where he was magnificently feasted, lodged and served, over humble his rank. Next morning he again presented himself to the chapter, where, kneeling in the presence of a great assembly, he was severely reproved for his sins and admonished to give thanks to God, to St. Romain, and to the canons for the pardon he had received in virtue of the privilege. History and meaning of the privilege of the Fiatre or Shrine of St. Romain in Ruin. What was the origin and meaning of this remarkable privilege of the Fiatre, as the Shrine of St. Romain was called? Its history has been carefully investigated by A. Flockwitz, Chief Registrar of the Royal Court of Ruin, with the aid of all the documentary evidence, including the archives, both the Ruin and Paris. He appears to have shown conclusively that the association of St. Romain with the custom is comparatively late. We possess a life of the saints in Latin verse, dating from the 8th century, in which the miracles said to have been wrought by him are set forth in a strain of pompous eulogy. Yet neither in it nor in any of the other early lives of St. Romain and St. Owen, nor in any of the older chronicles and metrologies, is a single word said about the destruction of the dragon and the deliverance of the prisoner. It is not till 1394 that we meet, for the first time, with a mention of the miracle. Moreover, the deliverance of the prisoner can hardly have been instituted in honour of St. Romain, else it would have taken place on the 23rd of October, the day in which the Church of Rowan celebrates the translation of the saint's bones to the cathedral. St. Romain died in 638, and his bones were transferred to the cathedral of Rowan at the end of the 11th or the beginning of the 12th century. Further, Flockwood has adduced strong grounds for believing that the privileged claims by the chapter of ruin of annually pardoning a condemned criminal on Ascension Day was unknown in the early years of the 12th century, and that it originated in the reign of Henry I, or Stephen, if not that of Henry II. 
he supposes the ceremony to have been in its origin a scenic representation of the triumph of christ over sin and death the deliverance of the condemned prisoner symbolizing the deliverance of man from the yoke of corruption and bringing home to the people in a visible form the great mystery which the festival of the ascension was instituted to commemorate such dramatic expositions of christian doctrine he points out were common in the middle ages suggested origin of the custom plausible as is this solution of the problem it can scarcely be regarded as satisfactory had this been the real origin of the privilege we should expect to find the ascension of christ either plainly enacted or at least distinctly alluded to in the ceremony but this so far as we can learn was not so again would it not savour of blasphemy to represent the sinless and glorified redeemer by a ruffian stained with the blackest crimes moreover the part played by the dragon in the legend and in the spectacle seems too important to allow us to explain it away with loquet as mere symbol of the suppression of paganism by saint romain the tale of the conquest of the dragon is older than christianity and cannot be explained by it a ruin the connection of saint romain with the story seems certainly to be late but that does not prove the story itself to be late also judging from the analogy of similar tales elsewhere we may conjecture that in the Rowan version the criminal represents a victim annually sacrificed to a water spirit or other fabulous being, while the Christian saint has displaced a pagan hero, who was said to have delivered the victim from death and put an end to the sacrifice by slaying the monster. Thus it seems possible that the custom of annually pardoning a condemned malefactor may have superseded an older practice of treating him as a public scapegoat who died to save the rest of the people, in the sequel we shall see that such customs have been observed in many lands it is not incredible that at rowan a usage of this sort should have survived in a modified shape from pagan times down to the twelfth century and that the church should at last have intervened to save the wretch and turn a relic of heathendom to the glory of god in saint romain but this explanation of the famous privilege of the fete is put forward with a full sense of the difficulties attending it and with no wish to dogmatize on so obscure a subject. End of section eight.